Hello, everybody, and welcome to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. And we have such a special co-host today. Uh, you might know his work as a screenwriter from films like Disturbia, maybe uh, a couple paranormal activity films thrown in there. You might know his work as a director. Maybe you've seen, I don't know, Scout's Guide to the Apocalypse, or I don't know, this little humble film called Freaky? Or maybe you're a fan of one or both Happy Death Day movies? Things that things that land on people's best of horror movies of the year lists. That is right, I am talking about the absolutely fabulous, ab-fab, Christopher Landon. Uh, something that you might not know about Chris is that his father is Michael Landon, who was a very big television star throughout the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Best known for his roles on Bonanza, if you're one of my parents out there, or Little House on the Prairie, if you're one of somebody like me out there. Uh, That is relevant to this conversation for reasons you are about to find out. I am so excited for this conversation because Chris is just honestly a tremendous conversationalist, uh, a shining star this man is. And then later, of course, we will have one quick thing before I go. And because this is my podcast and it's my rules, that one quick thing is going to be about Elle Fanning. Let's get on to the main event with Christopher Landon. Christopher Landon, I am so appreciative that you would take the time to join us for this. Um, you're one of my favorite directors, and this is a real honor to be able to talk about movies with you. Well, I am very, very honored to be here with you. And... Um... I love to talk about movies. <laughs> I could, I, I, I could do it all day, much to my my husband's chagrin. But um, yeah, and I think that we have this kind of unspoken agreement that I will endure talk of sports. Oh, okay. And so I, I get to, I get to torture him with lots of movie talk, and <laughs> and and then he can torture me with sports talk. So it's fair, fair game. Well, um, but in the truly opposite of a conversation about sports you have brought one of the just such an incredibly compelling text for us to discuss today um as far as a character that has made you feel seen chris who have you brought for us to discuss well today i have brought the eternal classic Mm -hmm. the eternal camp classic Mm -hmm. i guess i should say mommy dearest uh, and of course, we'll be we'll be focusing on Christina, mm-hmm. a a character, a real human being, mm-hmm. a real human being <laughs> um, that really made me feel seen. Mm-hmm. And um, so, how how old were you when you first experienced Mommy Dearest? So it's and it's weird because I I I think back and I know that I saw this film for the first time when I was probably about six Mm. or seven years old. I'm going to say seven Mm -hmm. just to try and make my parents look slightly better. (laughs) I was maybe five when I saw Hellraiser. So there's no judgment in that context. But I remember, you know, I saw this film and then it just became, you know, my, my older sister and I were sort of movie buddies. um, And we had like most children, I think, you know, you have certain films in sort of a constant rotation. Yeah. Um, and, and this was definitely in our top three. 
um, we watched this movie again and again and again. <laughs> I don't know why we owned it. We owned a we 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 own a VHS copy of this movie. Uh-huh. Um, and and I know is sort of a is it you know a burgeoning queer kid <laughs> yeah. like the cover alone was You're like right. oh I need to see this. <laughs> yeah. um, this is this is important cinema. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but something inside me just feels compelled toward this. Yeah. And look, I should. I should preface this immediately by saying that, you know, I was not beaten with wire hangers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I did not go through the kinds of, of crazy and awful abusive things that happened um, in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did very much relate to so much that was in it as a child. And so to have such an, an immediate connection to something in such a bizarre way but it spoke to a very to to a certain kind of specificity in my life, um, and so I think that's what really drew me into it. And then, of course, I think it was, you know, just the the, the over the top performances, the camp, the um, just everything, everything spoke to me. And what was that? What was that specificity that you found a kinship in? Um, the movie is set in Los Angeles, specifically Beverly Hills. It is, you know, obviously Joan Crawford was a celebrity and my dad was a celebrity and, and a relatively famous actor. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the world was familiar. Like I, I understood what it was like to <clears throat> sort of exist in this very long shadow and you felt um, like this movie successfully <clears throat> evoked that feeling that you had. Like it, it painted that world correctly for you. Yes. Yes, it wow. did. Because, you know, it, w- what it did do correctly. And again, I think what's interesting about it is that, you know, when I was a kid, I don't think I understood just how broad and sort of ridiculous it was. But I think when you are a child in the way that a lot of sort of animation and sort of any kind of entertainment that's really sort of geared toward children tends to be not very subtle. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit a bit over the yeah. top, you know? And and that's I think where that's sort of where kids begin. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 how we really start to understand things. We have to see them in bold. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's what this movie was doing yes. and I was and I just was like, oh okay. Um but it's you know it it just kind of did a lot of interesting things. You know, Joan Crawford was a was a you know, a, a larger than life person. Um, and I think most celebrities are. Um, and, you know, when when you grow up with a person who is in the spotlight, who is sort of being, you know, deified and, um, you know, celebrated and worshipped by adoring fans and all of this stuff, it really is this kind of, you see that person and it, even though they're your parent, you do see them in that light mm-hmm. too. And they kind of feel sort of bigger and untouchable. And so, and I saw that in the film mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, okay. So here's a girl who kind of knows, right. knows the deal. Um, but also kind of, I saw things too that were like, yeah, but it's not always fun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes they're raging narcissists and they, you know, only think of themselves. And I'm, again, I'm not saying that about my dad, but, um, but it's, it is a common denominator uh-huh. I think with with a lot of celebrities and so there were just a lot of things in the film that I that I recognized um so it's weird but yeah why can't you treat me the way 
I would be treated by any stranger on the street because I am not one of your fans. Were you, was that, um, was a feeling of recognition in that way something that surprised you to experience in sort of any context? Or did you, did you feel like you had contemporaries around you, like friends and peers and such, who you also had that, like, you, you could see each of your lives in one another? Or was this kind of rare experience? To this see is it? rare. Oh, wow. This was okay. rare. It was very rare. I did not, you know, it's interesting. My, I did not grow up around a lot of celebrities. Mm-hmm. Um, and their kids, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was something that my dad, I think, very intentionally chose to avoid mm-hmm. because he didn't want us to, ironically, did not want us to grow up in that world, mm-hmm. even though we were growing up in that world. <laughs> yeah. um, but he didn't want to sort of, I don't think he wanted it to, to be exacerbated by mm-hmm. by that. Um, and so we didn't have this. And so I didn't I didn't see it. Yeah. Um, and I actually, for a, for a period of time, I think the way that a lot of kids do, I kind of thought I was the only one. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so it was both exciting and and also very strange and lonely, you know, because we would go out to, to, to public places um, and everybody would, like, stare at us mm-hmm. and sort of people would come up to him and it was a whole big thing. And, and I didn't know how to process that, you know? And it was really strange and hard for me to understand that as a child, to understand what was really going on there. Um, and feeling like my dad belonged to everyone and not, and not just me. And so, again, I think there's little moments in the film where you see, you see Christina really more sort of playing with sort of the idea of wanting a little piece of it for yeah, herself. Yeah, that's you know, a really like interesting that. aspect of this movie is how subtly it shades that in. Yeah, which I think is, is a, it's a real thing you mm-hmm. know like it's a real thing like I remember sort of like you know I was a very shy kid growing up but then there was still that aspect of like if you knew there was like a photographer nearby yeah. or someone that was taking pictures you kind of suddenly like find yourself like creeping out from behind <laughs> that leg and be like get a little light on that face <laughs> you know like yeah. just just like weird stuff that's very human nature uh-huh. stuff sort of this I don't, I want to be invisible, but I want some of that attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to be able to uh, self-select into this a little bit. Yeah. And by the way, I think my career choice mm-hmm. speaks to that. You know what I mean? Like I never wanted to be an actor cause that's too full on. Like I don't want, that's too much, but like, okay, maybe if I'm behind the camera, yeah. I can, I don't know. It's weird. Um, and I'm starting to scare myself, but um, <laughs> I have to add in just for for those out there listening, if you haven't uh, experienced Mommy Dearest yet, this is uh, based on the memoir of Joan Crawford's adopted daughter, Christina Crawford. Um, And it is an unsparing look into her life growing up, uh, often mistreated, uh, abused in many ways. Um, And the movie renders this with the fabulous singular Faye Dunaway, who was really gunning for an Oscar when she took this role. And it it was it was it was not appreciated upon its release uh, for the credibility cinema that I think it aspired to be. But has, as uh, Chris said in introing it, the camp classic Mommy Dearest persists as an incredible piece of pop culture lore. And I have to ask, as the as the burgeoning uh, young gay, can you remember how you felt the first time you witnessed that 
opening like montage of we don't see her face we see her 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 ablutions we see her scrubbing routine and her shower routine and her walking closets can you yes. remember that first experience I, of that opening in mommy dearest yes oh, yes God. yes yes and it was and again not gonna lie this there was a lot of my mother there was a wow. lot of my mother in there so my mom my mom was a was a model when she was young okay. and she was she was statuesque and she was beautiful mm. um and she was one of those people that you know everywhere she went sort of you know heads turned heads she turned was, okay she was, she was she was very pretty and as she got older and what's interesting is that I really started to really focus on this movie not long after my parents divorce mm. and so I think my mom was really going through a lot we're gonna we're gonna get real deep here tonight, guys. This I will is, go as far is, as anybody is, is willing to take my hand and walk with me. But I think you know, as someone who was sort of going through an enormous amount of personal turmoil, mm-hmm. um, who felt that her beauty was fading, um, it was very normal for me to sort of find my mom rigorously trying to maintain her body and her face. And it was a lot uh-huh. and it, and it and there were, there was hours tied to this, to this regime. And she did have like the giant walk-in closets wow. that went on forever. I remember like her walk-in closet also had like a sitting room where like her hair would dry under massive lamps Whoa. and like, oh yeah, it was super cuckoo bananas, like kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, often she would be like in a big, like long silk robe with like a turban on her head with like cold cream on her face. That is exactly this opening sequence. Wow. So it was, and again, so when I'm watching this, I'm not watching this movie, the opening of this movie, like, oh, wow. Yeah. I was watching it like, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, this is what they do. That's what happens at home. She does it too. (laughs) Um, And that really was outside of the crazy abusive stuff, you know. Yeah. um, There was just so much to recognize uh-huh. that didn't that didn't make me blink uh-huh. at all, you know, um, and it's you know it's just it's it's just such a it's such a strange thing to kind of find so many parallels in such a terrible movie. <laughs> that is so it's so fascinating how this this figure of Joan in this film can mm-hmm. like is in in combination echoed not just one of your parents who had this high public profile, but both of them in sort of It was of sort of a combination. That's it's, nuts. It, it, it sort of brought my parents together in, in a lot of ways. You know, and my and my mom again was was she was a big a big personality. Mm-hmm. Um and she was um and she was incredibly funny and dry and witty uh-huh. and clever and s- always smarter than every man in the room <laughs> but not a- but not allowed to be you know right. um, that aces trumps kings moment at the table you're aces jody glad you think that ld because aces beat king <laughs> <laughs> not in hollywood dude yeah exactly and so you know there was so much of that and she also was prone to the occasional flip out Mm -hmm. um and not with us not but like you could she could blow her top and again it just reminded me sometimes of it's not that she was going to be out you know 
with giant shears hacking up a you know rose garden, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, Hand me the axe, Christopher. Yeah. <laughs> Tina! Bring me the axe! It was this funny sort of felt like sometimes an exaggeration of my life, you know. Uh-huh. I could I could see my mom getting really mad at us in her cold cream and it looking like some kind of fucked up Beverly Hills Kabuki theater, (laughs) like, you know, but like, but I, but I remember even as a kid and this was, I think sort of the gay side of it, you know, appreciating it so much. Like I remember my sister and I, we weren't scared of this movie. I was going to ask what was the thing that drew you to it? Like over and over. Was it the thrill? Was it the horror? Was it the like just the camp of it? As you say, it was, it was the horror of it in many ways. But like, I remember, you know, when, when she does that, the wire hanger scene, wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you no wire hangers ever and at the end of the scene you know when she says like you know clean this mess up or whatever she (laughs) says there but she did this like fucking crazy thing with her eyes like she she crosses her eyes when she leans to exit the frame I I, she does like cross her eyes I noticed that watching it this time and I hadn't before like what is yeah, she, she just crosses doing her, her face? And we would rewind it again and again, and we would die laughing. <laughs> like we we knew it was funny, and we were we were losing it, but at the same time, we were also like scared and thought, "Oh my god, this woman's a fucking nutcase, and she's so mean." <laughs> um, you know, but. There were other times too where I was like, you know, Christina's a brat. <laughs> She's not. She deserves not. it. She's not. Yeah. Not. It, 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 and I, I found what I really start focused in on when I watched it this time was like the the lore around this movie, like its cultural cachet, is mm-hmm. that like look at this fucking nightmare that is Joan Crawford. The wheels come up and like, but watching it this time, I really was like. Yes, this is not flattering because if if this is the truth, then it wouldn't be flattering. This is very bad. But at the same time, I was fascinated how much I was catching this time. This movie doesn't hate Joan Crawford. This movie sees Joan Crawford actually quite tenderly. And I was reading an excerpt from a review by, I think, was it Vincent Canby? Um, uh, From when it came out, I believe, who was saying that, like, this movie where where the the memoir makes Joan Crawford kind of a one-dimensional like stock character villain the movie in the movie she is positively alive and mm-hmm. i was really like clear up to the end the heartbreaking love that they seem to have for one another like it is still like you see her daughter's face light up when her mm-hmm. mom surprising surprises her and stops by and comes to the door after this yeah. life of turmoil with her. But she can mm-hmm. still make her happy and make her pleased in a way that nobody else can, which is the great trick of embattled relationships with parents. Yeah. But I was really fascinated this time to not walk away being like, man, Joan Crawford, the fucking villain. It was like Joan Crawford did bad stuff and tragic yeah. Fucking tragic. Yeah. I mean, most of these people come from such broken, mm. 
homes, such broken situations, and there's so much pain. And obviously it's the driver, you know, and, and again, stuff that I saw with my dad, my dad grew up, um, you know, with a, you know, this, and again, another fascinating connection. And I knew this as a child because my dad was very open and very vocal about it. He grew up with a very abusive mother, Mm. physically abusive mother. Um, and so again, these sort of these lines that I kind of drew to this movie because I knew like, oh, that's, that's something that dad talked about, Mm -hmm. you know, with his mom, she would probably do something like that to him. Um, and what's interesting about the movie is that in all of its sort of camp and all the sort of amazing, funny things that sort of we can take away from it. The weird thing is, is that I feel fairly confident that like, had you been a fly on the wall Mm -hmm. in the room and many of these kind of moments that inspired these scenes, they probably weren't too far off. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, I believe no, that... I believe her. She, I believe that this is kind of who she was. Yeah. It's just that I don't think that people could really handle that, you know? Mm-hmm. It's hard. There's such a fine line, you know? Um, and sometimes when you present something in its reality and its truth, it's it feels like it's fake. Mm-hmm. It feels false, you know? And so... Um, I mean, how many times have you been in a situation where you were like, oh my God, if this were in a movie, no one would believe it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that was Joan Crawford's life. Yeah, I think and you're I think right. That was, that was that home life. Like you couldn't, and that's why I think, especially again, as a kid, it never read as camp to me. You know, it felt very believable and very honest, um, even though it was, it was bad shit. It also really hit me watching it this time that in the first time that they start telling her in the movie that she's getting old, I looked up. I was like, when was Jerome Crawford fucking born? And it was like me. It's like around. It's a little after 1940. I think that they're telling her this. And I'm like, Joan Crawford's like 36. Yeah. Like when they start telling her this, she's like maybe 36 years yeah, old. Yeah, she's dried up at 36. Yeah, like, you're getting yeah. older. I was just like, yeah. oh my God. And then like thinking of like how Mildred Pierce was such like a resurgent role for her. She needed mm-hmm. the part. She was desperate for the part. And it yeah. was like, because she was a has-been. She was losing the studio money. She was Hollywood royalty, but her best days were behind her. And she was maybe 38 years old. Yeah, it's it's insane. <laughs> I it's mean. insane. But that's that was the way things were. Yeah. Um, and still are. Yeah. <laughs> in, yeah. in many ways. In many ways. Um but God, I mean, so, so much worse than and how just sort of unbelievably disposable women were mm-hmm. to to men and to the system. Um, and again, I think. And so much emphasis on on beauty, you know, and oh. youth. And, and, I, and I again, I watched my mom step into the ring every day with her gloves on, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. trying to trying to fight you know, an opponent she could never beat. And so it was, it was really, 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 really tough on her, mm-hmm. really tough on her. And I, 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 even as a child, I could under I could see it and understand it in ways that I don't, I don't think most kids should yeah. or would, but I really did, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I related a lot to that and what I saw in, in the film. We are going to take a quick break, but we will be right back to talk more with Christopher Landon, and we will get around to his story about sharing, God, you guys, sharing an elevator with Faye Dunaway. The story is not going to go how you think it would, I guess, but it's going to be better than whatever you're assuming. So stick around.
Hi, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin. And the three of us host The Flophouse. It's a podcast where we watch a new bad movie and then we talk about it. Dan, you say it's hosted by the three of us. We've had a lot of great guest co-hosts like Gillian Flynn, Jamel Bowie, John Hodgman, Jessica Williams, Wyatt Cenac, Joe Bob Briggs, Josh Gondelman, Roman Mars. Yeah, and you said new movies. But what about the time we did Meatballs 2? Okay, okay. Yeah, sometimes we do older movies and sometimes we have guests, but mostly it's about us talking about like recent bad movies. And don't forget about the ones where I made you do a role-playing game where you played cartoon dogs. All right, yeah. Shouldn't a promo be a really simple explanation about what our show's about? So what's the show about, Dan? What's it about? (sighs) What's it about? It's about friendship, all right? It's about our friendship and how we love each other. The Flophouse. It's a podcast mostly about bad movies on Maximum Fun. Do you sometimes wonder whatever happened to the kids at your school who really loved Star Trek? You might remember a kid like me, the one who read the Star Trek novels and built Starship models. I also took music classes to avoid taking gym classes that required showering after, but I don't see what that really has to do with- Or a kid like me. I introduced myself to kids at my summer camp one year as Wesley, but when the school year started and some of those kids were in my new class, I actually had to explain to my friends that I had tried to take on the identity of my favorite Star Trek character. The shame haunts me to this day. I'm sure some of those Star Trek fans from your childhood grew up to have interesting and productive lives, but we ended up being podcasters. On The Greatest Discovery, you'll hear what happens to two lifelong Star Trek fans who didn't grow up to be great people, but just grew up to be people who love jokes as much as they love Trek. So listen to our new episodes every week on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Back to Feeling Scene, where today, the writer and director, Christopher Landon, is talking with me about the movie Mommy Dearest. Now, and, and you know, you can't, you, you can't speak for everybody, but I, like, just from your own position, what is it about, why are these figures, the, the Joan Crawfords, in a, in a moment like now, the Kate Blanchett's, there's the, you know, queer icons, these, these, mm-hmm. these divas of screen, these divas of entertainment and pop culture, these bigger than life sort of world wrecking figures. What is it about that that imparts that status of like queer iconography to it? What is in your even just own experience? Why is that the flame that draws the gay moths to it. What is, why is it so powerful? As somebody who loves it, I guess I would have my own reasons, but I'm wondering what you think they are. I just don't think that, I mean, there isn't one reason. Yeah. I, can, I can say that much. I think it's, there's a myriad of reasons. Um, I mean, I think that many, I can't say all, because I don't, I don't want to sort of cast that wide of a net, but I think many, many men, gay men, specifically grow up with at least one woman that embodies Mm. these qualities. Mm -hmm. They may not be, they may not be the whole package. They may not be full Joan, (laughs) but you might, but I, I do think that, and they tend to be sort of, they, they tend to be our role models and our allies, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, our protectors, the people that make us feel seen, you know, um, and it's not always a mother, you know, it's, it's a friend, it's an aunt, it's a, you know, there's, there's different versions of her. Um, but I think that we're very drawn to them. And again, I really, it speaks much more, I think, to the role model mm-hmm. aspect of it too. You know, I don't think that a lot of gay boys 
look up to their fathers in the way that straight boys do mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because there's a disconnect, Yeah, you know? And I think that we're so busy trying to either sort of undo something or fix something and want that approval. But when it comes to sort of just like this sort of person that you're looking up to, that you see that embodies the sort of qualities that you want to have as a human being, it's, it's, it's these women. Um, and they, and again, I mean, you know, I think, Gay boys and gay men have always been very drawn to to glamour mm. and to be, to beauty, to things that are refined and. You I've, know, I've heard I, you speak it, very passionately about Elvira before, in her being. Oh my like, god! Uh, and I was obsessed. <laughs> and it's it's the again you see it again and again and again. You know where it's 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 so funny, and now it's like we have new versions of these women. We have, like you said, you've got Kate Blanchett. You've got, I mean, even like the modern pop versions like Dua Lipa. Oh, like, yeah. What fucking gay man doesn't look at Dua Lipa and be like, oh, I want to be her. <laughs> Absolutely. Like she is gorgeous and tall and confident and all of it. It's all of it. So, you know, I think that it's it's something that we definitely are, are, are drawn to. Um, and I'm sure there's much sort of deeper things that things that play there but at least at face value. Yeah, there's a there's a philosophy podcast you can go on and talk about that, I'm sure. Yeah. And I well, and something I was thinking about watching this like a a staple part of your career in genre is these is the tenderness that your movies have. Like the heart and the vulnerability that is just really it seems like embedded um in your stories no matter what genre it would be, but you you play in the sandbox a lot of horror. Um wonderful like familial connections wonderful like mothers who even if they aren't perfect they're doing their fucking best just lovable Mm -hmm. and loyal like Carrie Ann Moss in Disturbia is one of my favorite screen moms of all time and then obviously we have like the mom who's having a hard time but she's just so devoted and doing her best in Freaky and then in the Happy Death Day movies like the specter of this mother is just so big and great because she was so wonderful that like there's you have in two movies devoted to our heroine tree the wonderful Jessica Roth coping with losing her and I wondered when when did you like when did that start expressing itself in your storytelling where that just became something you would so consistently treat with such like tender gloves? <laughs> um, the question is why am I a mama's boy? <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I look, I think again, I can only speak from my own, my own experience, my own upbringing. Um, but my mom for all her kookiness and all her sort of um, flaws, um, she was a protector, mm. um, a fierce protector of her children. Mm. Um, and, and and it's interesting, the older she got, the more she grew into her, her maternal side. Mm. And she bloomed late in life. And so I sort of had a weird... I mean, it was harder on me as a little kid mm-hmm. because I didn't have a traditional mom who like drove me to school and made my lunch yeah. and just did normal mom stuff. Like my mom would come, I shit you not, to back to school night. She came to slay. Wow. She came to turn every man's eye and she would literally, I remember one time she wore like a mini skirt with fishnet stockings <laughs> and like these crazy fucking 12 inch heels. And oh my like, God. 
She was Your fond of wigs. Your mom was a queer icon. <laughs> uh, she was a queer icon. Um, and, and, you know, that's who she was as a, as a mother of a child. Yeah. But then as I got older, she really did start to kind of ease into this other sort of phase of her life. And she became really sweet. Um, and that really kind of reached into my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my mom passed away when I was, this was probably about, fuck now, seven years ago. Mm. Um, Sorry. Yeah, but the Happy Death Day movies were me very much working out oh. that loss. And so that's why there's so much of that in those movies, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I was really, really going through it. And it's what's interesting about that, too, is that, you know, Jessica is super close to her mom. Mm. She and her mom are best friends. They are I, incredibly the, the close. The one time I've interviewed Jessica Roth, we cried about our, like, moms and grandmas together in yeah, an interview. So you, so that's why she and I <laughs> had this such this connection, you know, um, with with the movie. We also just love each other because she's incredible. But, um, but yeah, there's just a lot of mom stuff on my mind. But I also just have so much respect. Now that I'm a parent myself, I have so much more respect for my parents and understand them so much more. I understand their vulnerabilities and their flaws mm-hmm. so much more. Um, and I, you forgive everything. And it's, it's such a gift. To have that, you know, to be able to kind of move past a lot of pain and and see that, like, yeah. you know, everybody's just trying to figure their shit out. And there's no guidebook um, to being a parent. And so a lot of my work now, I try to examine all my characters with as much affection as possible, um, even in a horror film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> even when even when people are dying brutally. I think that's um, really I think that is I think that is one of the most noteworthy things about your movies is how much affection you 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 seem to imbue into a, a, every character that like we're meant to care about. We care right. about them because we know you super fucking do. Yeah. Yeah. Um but and I think that going back to Mommy Dearest, I think that the filmmakers had great affection for these characters mm-hmm. and there was, it was there. Like there's a lot of passion in that movie, mm-hmm. you know, maybe too much passion in <laughs> yeah, that movie, maybe that's you it. know, <laughs> just, a, just a, a slight overdose of passion. Um, <laughs> but, but it is all there. And I really believe that, that Faye Dunaway really had so much deep appreciation and respect and love for Joan Crawford I think you're exactly right. And and it's interesting because, and Faye, forgive me, um, this is not meant to sound rude. Um, <laughs> not that you'll ever hear this, but you never know. Um, but a, a full circle mommy dearest moment for me was I, I was living um, in my, how old was I? I was in like my mid-20s. Uh-huh. I was living in West Hollywood in this building called Shoreham Towers, uh-huh. which was right above the old Tower Records on Sunset, right? Mm-hmm. And Faye Dunaway moved into my building. Oh my god! Oh my because god! Because she was she was renovating her house, and so she <laughs> like wanted to be close. And I remember like catching a couple glimpses of her, fleeting glimpses of her, and like having like palpitations, like I yeah, was freaking out. And then all, but what I discovered, which I'd heard, was that like people would always joke that like she had a very 
difficult time leaving that role behind. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> like that she somehow just kind of stayed in that mode after Mommy Dearest. Like you see it in Supergirl, which is another movie that like I could unpack for days, <laughs> you know, because she's just like, she's still being Joan Crawford. Uh-huh. Anyways, point being, I'm sitting in the lobby and, and all of a sudden Faye Dunaway storms into the lobby and then she's wearing like this like pashmina wrap <laughs> And she and she storms in, and there was like a little concierge desk in the lobby, and she just storms in, and she goes, "Where is Kukaru? Oh my god! Stop! <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my fucking god! She is Joan Crawford. She's totally Joan Crawford. Wow! She's still doing it, and that was real life. She had been driving around West Hollywood trying to find Kukaru." back when it was down there on La Siena uh-huh. or whatever, and she got lost and she was furious and she like came storming in, <laughs> shouting that, just shouting it to like anyone who would listen, you know? Wow. And that is that is the most, that is the most Hollywood moment with a capital H that a person could have. It was, but I doubled down. I doubled <laughs> down because I, she went to the elevator, so I like followed her uh-huh. like a, creepy gay stalker Um, (laughs) and I got into the elevator with her and it was like so quiet it was so uncomfortable (laughs) and I didn't know what to do and I couldn't I was like how do I manage this feeling because I don't get starstruck yeah like I've never been the type of person that gets starstruck but she did it she did it for me and so I just looked at her like kind of out of the corner of my eye and I just gave her like a nod Uh and I went and I just and I literally said Faye. <laughs> like I was on a first name basis with her. And, and she goes, who the fuck are you? Oh, yes. And yes. I And I just couldn't help it. And she started laughing. And then I laughed. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm a big fan. And she's like, oh, that's lovely, darling. What's your name? And oh I told her my, my name. God, and, that is perfect. And this is all in this like quick elevator ride. And then... <laughs> And then the sad thing is I never saw her again. I don't know if I made her move out. I don't know if I just <laughs> fucked it up. But it was it was amazing. But she really that 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 day in the lobby, I was like, wow, she this is I I couldn't figure out if she brought so much of herself to the role. Right. Or if it really just left its mark. Well, I was I was reading I was reading just sort of like seeing if I could find any of like her sort of thoughts on the movie earlier. But this this quote really stood out to me. Just what you were saying, like I in in the way that you're like I think she really like like felt for Joan and written this where she says um, this is from a Vanity Fair article. I think it was aggregating it says quote only God may ever know what passed between Crawford and her daughter. And in many ways, I think the relationship was the inevitable tragedy that comes from a child of want, which is what Crawford was and a child of plenty, which is what the little blonde girl was. <laughs> the Amazing. little blonde, the little girl. blonde girl. Faye Dunaway Amazing. knows what team she is on, and it yeah, is not she, Christina no, Crawford. No, it is it is Teen Joan all the <laughs> she, fucking way. She made that fucking movie. She said the name Tina six thousand times, and then oh, in she interview, knows she's the like, name. That little blonde, little girl. blonde girl. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. Oh my God, I died when I read that's that. Amazing. So that's amazing. And so you saying that just now, I was like, yeah, I feel like that has to be true based on just the implications that we can take for how Faye processed that. And her seemingly sort of 
if not like full regret with the role, but like regret in how it was executed. It's to perhaps in her mind portray Jane un- Joan in an unfairly unflattering light in a way that she seems to think um, should have been more if, even and fair to her. So yeah, right. I think we can. And and that I mean, what a perfect display. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> you're like, yeah, it was amazing. Like, that is the greatest gift you could have given me. Is this right now? <laughs> that was it. I didn't need anything else after that. That is the, like, that is was... living the dream of like Twitter parlance in 2022 of like Faye Dunaway step on my neck. Like yeah. that is what happened to you. It was. It was beautiful. And she wasn't <laughs> even. She wasn't even. What there was no condescension or cruelty or like it was it was there was just she was funny (laughs) she was in on the joke with me you know I really I appreciate it because I you know I ended up in my in my one of many careers um working on a I used to direct this show called making the video oh yeah yeah documentary style like you know it was EPK yeah um for music videos and I loved making the video I was known as the Diva Wrangler. Oh, um, okay. You had a way with them. Well, I did I sort of, I guess, just fell into it. But again, I had training. Uh-huh. I had I, I had people in my life. <laughs> um, and so I worked with a lot of big personalities and, and it was all women. And there were a couple that were like, that were big icons that really let me down. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that, those were not Faye Dunaway experiences, uh-huh, you know? Uh-huh. Like, I was like crushed because I was like, oh, you're like really mean. Oh, no. <laughs> you're, you're like a horrible person. Oh, um, no. So she was she was a shining light in a world of dark. Yeah. For me, at least. Well, I, you know, like you said, as, as you know, you are a family man now. And I, I wonder, like, did you notice a did you notice a distinct change in the way you started in the way you express like affection within your scripts for people when you realized you were kind of experiencing the sense of like forgiveness for your parents of the past and like them doing their best. Like, was there a sort of priority shift for you for how you wanted to create people when you were raising your own? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a seismic shift in, in the kind of work that I want to do, the way that I want to portray Mm -hmm. my characters, how I want to see them, how I want to feel them. Um, and it's not that I've given up on on the darker mm. aspects of my personality, and I'm still very much drawn to that stuff. But, um, I mean, the, the movie that I'm working on right now, um, I think probably examines parenthood, specifically fatherhood, more than anything I've ever touched. Mm. Um, yeah, we've got a lot of moms in your movie and movies. Yeah. And it's it's been yeah. fewer fathers. It's been many yeah. single moms. Yeah, so this one is very much about it's a very the emphasis is on a, on the father son relationship, um, and that was all very much about me working through a lot of my own sort of fears and insecurities as a parent, um, and also again going back to sort of the forgiving my dad mm-hmm. for a lot of things um, that I now realize were not. Um, intentional things they were just sort of things that he that he was doing his best Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know um and sometimes his his their best is your worst um (laughs) but 
but <laughs> oh. um, but yeah, it's it's had a, it's had a big impact on on that stuff and sort of the things that I choose to do. And also, what's different now is that you know before, you know, and and I say this, and marriage has also informed mm. a lot of this as well. But um, you know, when you before when I would make a film, be it directing or writing or whatever, um, and it was just it was another movie, like yeah, it was. Okay. It was a job. It was something fun. It was, you know, it was, and there was nothing else, Mm -hmm. you know? And so now when I look at things, movies also represent time away from the people that I care most about, Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. And so if I'm going to commit to something and really dive into something, I better fucking love it um, and need to make it um, if I'm not going to see my kids, you know, for long stretches of time. And, you know, because it's a lot of sacrifice. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's fun and I'm not here to be like, oh my God. (laughs) Because <laughs> um, it's not that at all. I, I, every single day, I wake up feeling unbelievably grateful. Um, but you, yeah, you, it's, it's a cost a, benefit you grew up on the receiving end of too, and yeah, so you know absolutely. what that math feels like. Absolutely. Um, so, so you know, I, I try to be very careful now and really sort of try and put everything into something that I like enough. <laughs> now, I the thing that carries over from this movie is the no there's much of it but no wire hangers really stands out as a cultural moment and also don't fuck with me fellas like in the boardroom this ain't my first time at the rodeo we don't want any hard feelings you don't know what hard feelings are until i come out publicly against your product and you'll see how much you sell please miss crawford it's hardly necessary to make threats you surely don't mean don't fuck with me, fellas! This ain't my first time at the rodeo. You forget the press I delivered to Pepsi was my power. I can use it any way I want. As you got older and if you kept experiencing the movie, have you noticed a shift in the things that hit you hardest now that maybe they didn't hit you so hard when you were younger, but as you've, you know, grown up and changed that it's like, oh, this is the thing that really sticks with me or this is the thing that really makes me cringe or makes me laugh. Yeah, I mean, I think I think my sister and I, for shits and giggles, watched it, you know, probably like 10 years ago. Um, you had to. You had to go back to it. We will always go back yeah. to it. You know what I mean? I think it's sort of like, it's kind of like a check-in. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. how are you? Like, because that's that's something that we had to experience together. Of course. You know, we laugh a lot like, you know, the scene where she has to sit at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Forever. Yeah. It's raw. It's rare. Not raw. But it's got all this red juice when I push on it. Then don't push on it. Darling, rare meat is good for you. The doctor said so. You are not getting up from this table until you have finished that meat. It was a very Depression-era, like, old-school way of sort of trying to teach kids lessons and things. And again, sort of speaking to the idea that, like, you know, that Joan grew up as a... she, She didn't have the things that Christina had. Uh And my parents parents were the same. My mom was the same. And so, like, my mom did that Uh to me. Like, I fucking had to sit at that table (laughs) for hours Mm -hmm. when everybody was going to bed. Looking at that raw steak on the plate. Looking at that fucking, in our case, it was fish. (laughs) Oh, no. Hours with a piece of fish. Fish. Cold fish. By the way, fish that, like, had been somehow stuffed with American cheese that was, like, whole- (laughs) 
and baked Ew. so that when you like cut it, the, the fish would belch American cheese. <laughs> <laughs> like so gross. Oh God. But um, so there's still kind of, you know, things that, that would jump out more. I think what I, what, what honestly really hit me the last time I saw it was the relationship which is barely touched on, interestingly enough, between Christina and her brother. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That in the chaos of their lives mm-hmm. in, in, and when they are struck by the, by the tornado that is their mother, yeah. that they would ra- that, that she was very protective. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they touched on that a bit. Mm-hmm. She would sort of care for him and he would sort of check and care for her. And, and that was another thing that I remember because I was with my sister. Um, that was something we both really, mm-hmm. it was very moving to us, mm-hmm. you know, to see some of that because we related to that as well. You know, when my mom, you know, would go through one of her sort of just, you know, she would have these breakdowns mm-hmm. because she was so broken um, and and destroyed by her relationship dissolving with my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really kind of, were each other's protection. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's another thing that I think it really stood out for me the last time I saw the film. Um, and it was such a, a thing that didn't cross my mind mm-hmm. in any other viewing. So that's definitely something that stood out more. Um, I still love the fucking swimming. The swimming <laughs> this, I, I'm stronger and I'm faster and I always will. Be. It was like, yeah. And I'll yeah. always beat you. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> And also there's this other thing that never gets old and my sister and I will also do this to each other is that sometimes we'll like at Thanksgiving we'll be sitting at the table and you can't, you can't hear this. You have to see it. So I'll describe it after, but like sometimes she and I will just look at each other and we'll just <laughs> stare like we're rubbing cream on our elbows. <laughs> and just that so is many... totally like Carol Burnett, like tugging at her ear on national yeah. television. Yeah. Just the, the moisturizing the elbows. It's so good. There's just, the movie has so many gifts. There's so many things to offer, so many things to keep. Um, and I, I adore it. I really love it. And it's, it's, it can never get old. If it, if it's ever on TV, which they don't really play no, it. No, it just doesn't like come up on TBS. No, this isn't like, you know, it just doesn't pop up much, but man, if it ever does. You're not I turning cannot, it off. I'm not turning that shit off. <laughs> not a chance. And I'm really wrestling with sort of like, you know, like most parents are like, when, like most dads are like, when can I finally show my son Star Wars? Yeah. And I'm like, when can I finally show my son Mommy Dearest? <laughs> like, yeah, my dad was like, okay? we're going to watch Blazing Saddles. Yeah, you know, like every parent's got their like, that's the one I want to show. And I'm like, okay. I'm not like, it's really funny because I'm surrounded by all these like cool dads who are showing their kids like, you know, Indiana Jones. And I'm just like, all I want to show my kids is fucking Rosemary's Baby and Mommy Dearest. We're going to watch Old Elvira. We're going to watch Vampira. And we are going to watch Mommy Dearest. Yeah. They got no chance. (laughs) Chris, thank you so much for coming here and talking about this movie specifically and being so generous in conversation. It's just, it's the <laughs> gift that keeps on giving when I'm able to have these kind of conversations with people. So I well, really appreciate you taking the time. It's wonderful. I had a blast. Thank you, Jordan. It was super fun. Thank you again 
actor Christopher Landon for coming on the show. I'm not kidding when I say I've, I've been hoping for so long that we could get him on here. He's very busy. He's making things all the time. It was just announced that he is going to be directing the new Arachnophobia, which he's going to be tremendous at. He just, uh, he has been spending the beginning part of this year finishing up the movie he made for Netflix. So this is a man on the go. We caught him in a free moment and I could not be happier to have talked to him generally, but what a treasure, what a treasured moment to be able to talk to him specifically about Mommy Dearest. But now, like I said, it's one quick thing before I go. And that one quick thing is, it's it's hardly, hardly could be quick, deserves to be a dissertation. Uh, my thing today is about just L Fanning. It is Emmy season. It is for your consideration time. And I'm no voter. I'm no stakeholder. But I'm just sitting here. I'm just a girl sitting in front of a microphone asking the world to consider the depth and breadth of the work from Elle Fanning. And the reason this is on my mind is because I learned practically moments ago on this very recording day that the American Cinematheque here in Los Angeles, California, is doing an L Fanning tribute, a two-night event, uh, where they will be honoring some of her works, and there will be a Q&A uh, with her on one of the nights. They're going to show some of her TV work. They're going to show some of her, some of her film work. Uh, and among that film work, you guys, if you know me at all, you know how much this means to me. I am going to see, because of this tribute, I am going to see the neon demon on a big screen again for the first time since it came out theatrically. And I, that must have been 2016 because I saw it at the Arclight Hollywood Rest in Peace in Hollywood on that big, beautiful, singularly crisp and clear Arclight screen. That is where I saw the neon demon. That is where I cried among the probably four other people who were in the room with me who were not having the emotional experience that I was. And even before that point, I was so hyped on Elle Fanning as just a generationally impressive talent. I kind of have sort of uh, glibly referred to her in my own life as as the Vanilla Princess. Uh, you can find that in my sort of Twitter history. Um, but despite that sort of uh, term of endearment nicknaming, she has had an audacious career. She has had a fascinating career. And it has been wonderful to see the chances uh, she takes and the choices she makes in how she has evolved from a teeny tiny child, like, you know, accompanying her sister in the movie I Am Sam, to the body and explosive performance she gives in The Great, to the incredible, you know, conniving, micro-expressive, force-of-nature performance she gives in Neon Demon, to uh, what she's doing now as really um, a difficult to watch protagonist central character in The Girl from Plainville, which you might remember a discussion about from when we had the wonderful Liz Hanna on the show. This is feeling scene synergy. Um, if you listen to that episode, you already know that I'm a big Elle Fanning fan. I just want to say shouts out to her. Shouts out to her fantastic career. Shouts out to every year when Cannes Film Festival comes around. And the thing I am most excited for is not to hear Thierry Frameau, uh say the latest stupid shit he's going to say about movies and what's good enough and what's not. But I am looking forward to every single uh, L Fanning red carpet look that she is going to make a meal out of. I just, this is an actress that just makes me so happy. Anya Taylor-Joy can run. Because Elle Fanning ran before her. It's not even a walk. 
It's not even a walk so others could run. She straight up has been running all this time. And she maintains a really uh, low celebrity profile. So it's not like you're talking about her all the time. So I feel like whenever she comes out and delivers yet another sort of definitive performance, it's like, oh, yeah, guys, remember that Elle Fanning is fucking amazing and kind of everything that she's in? She's always a delight and a surprise. And then she steps back and keeps to herself. And I think we would all love to see more celebrities who strike that exact balance. Thank you for your service, Elle Fanning, as a as a professional, as an actor. I cannot wait to see Neon Demon again on a big screen. See her definitive 21st century Hall of Fame performance as Jesse and the Neon Demon alongside absolutely magnetic turns from the whole supporting cast, including Abby Lee, brief, brief brilliance from Alessandra Navolo, incredible scheming from Jenna Malone, and the beautiful terrifying iciness of of Bella Heathcote it's all it's all gold from top to bottom so that's the one quick thing the one quick thing is my lifelong standship of Elle Fanning and that is the show you can follow us on twitter at feeling scene pod or send us an email at feeling scene at maximumfun.org if you want to follow me I'm Jorker on twitter that's j-o-r-c-r-u our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.